Howdy, Texas Tech listeners. It's Scott Braddock. Jeremy is not here, so I feel a little incomplete at the moment. We'll be talking on the next edition of the show very soon. But right now, I have a special bonus for you. It's a show that I have really started to enjoy. It's quickly become one of my favorites. It's called CityCast Houston, and it's hosted by Lisa Gray, uh, formerly of the Houston Chronicle. She's just wonderful. She, She and the folks on the show, they talk a lot about life in Houston, things that add texture to your life if you are somebody who either lives in Houston or you love Houston. Um, and they also tackle some more serious things. Uh, you know, For example, they were talking just the other day to Carrie Blakinger, who you may know who she is. She's uh, somebody who spent time behind bars and now is one of the top reporters in the country writing about life behind bars, you know, keeping up with the correction system. Uh, and she's got a new book out. It's called Corrections in Ink, which my daughter is reading. I guess I will get a chance to read it once she's done with her copy. I'll just, I'll swipe it from her. But I did want you to check this show out. And of course, Jeremy and I will be back in this feed with the Texas Take very soon. In the meantime, if you want to feel closer to Houston, check out CityCast Houston, subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts, including the Texas Take. What was prison like? Oh, wow. How much time do you have? That's a big (laughs) question. It is. Hi, CityCast listeners. Today, I'm talking again with one of our frequent guests, Carrie Blakinger of The Marshall Project. But this time, Carrie isn't here as the best corrections reporter in Houston or in Texas or arguably in the entire United States. Carrie has just published a new memoir, Corrections in Ink. So today, in the first of a two-part series, I'm talking with her about her life before she was a journalist. Before she covered prisons, she was a prisoner herself. Some of the language and some of the corrections we'll talk about are intense. So consider yourself warned. Carrie, could you start by reading the opening of Corrections in Ink? I have problems. I am out of clean clothes. I cannot find my glasses. My English paper is late. And my pockets are not big enough for all the heroin I have. Honestly, more than anything, I want a cigarette. I'm only 10 minutes from where I'm going and it's cold outside. The sun is deceptive. It looks like a nice upstate New York morning, but really it's December and the wind is whipping up from Ithaca's gorges. I stop walking and push my fingers deep into my pockets in search of a parliament. In a minute, there will be police with questions and handcuffs. By tomorrow, my scabby-faced mugshot will be all over the news as the Cornell student arrested with $150,000 of smack. I will sober up to a sea of regrets. My dirty clothes and late English paper, one of the last assignments I need to graduate, will be the least of my problems. But that's all in the future. Right now, I just want that cigarette. Where the fuck did I put them? Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. So that is the opening of your book. It's Ithaca, New York. It's 2010. You're 26 years old at that moment when your life suddenly changes. Could you start by backing up and talking about who you were before you were a heroin addict and walking around with a Tupperware full of smack? 
Yeah. So I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a lawyer. I had a pretty normal upper middle class upbringing, um, except for one thing, which was that I was a competitive figure skater. Gated. Oh, that little thing. <laughs> you were like not just any figure skater, right? Um, yeah, I did. I did pairs, which is where the guy throws you around and it looks all dangerous and shit. Yeah. And you you skated at nationals. You were a legit Olympic possibility. Like what? You had your eyes on it in middle school? Yes, we competed at nationals twice. Yep. I mean, my my goal had always been nationals. My goal had not been Olympics, um, although that is where he ended up going eventually. By high school, I was leaving school every day at like 10 in the morning and I'd be at the rink until like five or six training. So skating was my whole life, my whole identity. I was also, you know, struggling with eating disorders like a lot of skaters. And I was, you know, pretty anxious and depressed. I mean, it's a it's an intense sport. During my junior year of high school, my pair partner decided to branch out and find another partner. And in pairs, this is a big, big deal. Yeah, because the thing is, like in skating, there's so many more women than men that, you know, he could find a partner the next day or within a few weeks. And for me, it could be like weeks or months or never. And, you know, the other thing is this is a sport where you're being told that you're getting too old from like as young as you can remember. It seems wild now, but I remember there was a 23-year-old skater that was referred to as the old lady. So the idea that your life is over already. Right. So at 17, the thought of a year off seemed catastrophic. Yeah. You know, like this was potentially just the end. And since that was sort of my whole identity and everything I did, my social group, my whole future, when I felt like I was losing that, I just completely fell apart. I sort of liken it to as if you've gotten like divorced and fired from your job, but also every job forever. <laughs> and so how did you react? I mean, well, for a few months, I, I think I just cried in my room every night. Like I was still skating, but I was also just a, you know, crying, moping mess for months. And my parents were eventually like, Hey, why don't you go to Harvard summer school. They thought that this was the type of thing that would really excite me. And I'd be really into going to, you know, an Ivy league summer school. And because you're type A and you want to win <laughs> whatever you do. And it was also near an ice rink. Oh, so okay. it was like, I could still walk to a rink and, you know, continue skating. And it sounded good in theory, but what it meant was that the first time that I had no supervision at all coincided with the point at which I was already starting to unravel. And by the end of that summer, I stopped going to the rink as much and gotten a little bit into drugs. And then a few days after I got back, I, you know, depending who you ask, I either got into a fight with my parents and ran away or got kicked out and ended up spending most of my senior year living on the streets, doing sex work and shooting up. I continued to be a mess off and on for the next nine years. Well, mostly just a mess bumbling my way through college, first at Rutgers and then at Cornell. And then I got arrested in December of 2010. So that was the arrest that you read to us about? Yes. That was the first time you'd been arrested? Um, no, it wasn't the first time, but it was the first conviction. Okay. I'd been arrested in New Jersey with a small amount of weed and like maybe some coke. And I ended up getting a year of probation and then the charges were dropped. I'd never been in jail before. And 
I think I probably only had to set foot in a courthouse like once for that other case. So I did not have any conviction record. So in 2010, you're suddenly in jail. Yes. Yeah. What was jail like? You know, I think that one of the things that people don't think about with getting arrested or going through the system is how confusing it is. You know, there's so many basic things about being locked up that your average person doesn't know because you have no reason to know these things. Just the sort of the whole intake process and the guards act like you're supposed to just know what to do next or, you know, not be surprised by what's happening. Like you should, of course, expect that you have to, you know, stand naked in a shower with like delousing shampoo on on your head while a guard's watching you. I mean, I I don't think I objected because I was pretty high, but (laughs) like just the, the little things that they expect you to know or to understand, you know, after I went through the whole booking process, they sent me off into a cell block and, you know, said, that's your cell. And, you know, I walked in and they shut the door and I was so confused because everyone else was out and walking around and here I was locked in. And I was like, what did I fuck up already? Like, how am I already locked in and everyone else is out? And nobody tells you that was just like their routine medical isolation. And that's such a little thing, you know, it doesn't take long to tell someone, oh, you're going to be just medically isolated. It's totally normal. It'll last for X amount of time. Right. But I don't know if it's just that they don't care if you understand what's happening or they just sort of assume that everyone in jail has probably been there a bunch of times before, so doesn't need anything explained. But, you know, it's very disorienting to just sort of be locked in a cell with no explanation. I mean, that's just one example, but it was sort of like every single thing that happens throughout that first day or so, you just don't understand what's going on. Like, I didn't know how to, how do I go about getting a lawyer? Are my charges serious? When will I be in court next? What is the possible sentencing range here? Am I going to get out? Like, am I going to get bail? Like, these are all things that have clear answers and nobody tells you because, I mean, the system doesn't really care if you understand it. So what happened? What was your sentence? So I ended up being sentenced to two and a half years and I did 21 months of that. I was incredibly lucky about a number of things. One of them was just the timing because I was arrested after the Rockefeller drug laws had been repealed, which were some of the nation's first really draconian drug laws. Mm -hmm. Over the nearly 36 years since their enactment, the Rockefeller drug laws have cost New York State's taxpayers hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. The stars seem to be aligned to finally changing that law. It has been chipped away at for a number of years, but now it looks as if the last remnants of the mandatory sentencing for nonviolent possession of drugs is likely to be wiped away. Under those laws, I would have qualified for a sentence of 15 to life. Aye, aye, aye. But because those were progressively repealed starting in 2004, and then there were some more changes in 2009, and then I got arrested in 2010, right after all these changes had been made. So instead, I was able to get a sentence of two and a half years. I mean, there was definitely other factors at play there. Mm -hmm. One of them, I think, was also the dumb luck of geography because I was arrested in a very progressive county. And had I been arrested half an hour away in some of the much more tough on crime conservative counties that are most of what upstate New York is, yeah. I could have gotten easily 10 or 20 years instead of two and a half. But then also, of course, race and privilege have 
huge role here. Yeah, you're white. You were at an Ivy League school. Yeah. I assume you you had a lawyer who knew how to milk that. I, no, I, actually, I, I, I did you not didn't. have a paid no. lawyer. I had a, I had a court-appointed lawyer. Okay. People could at least see your whiteness by looking at you. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, but the other big thing about that is I think that a lot of times people think about white privilege in a specific arrest. Like they say, oh, in this one instance, you know, the judge probably treated you better because you were white. And that is a thing that I think is really hard to prove or disprove. So on a on an individual anecdotal level, it's really easy to dismiss white privilege when you look at it in only that time frame. But the reality is that I'd been doing drugs off and on for nine years at that point. And I had a lot of interactions with police that I think could have gone very differently if I had been a person of color, if I had been someone that they would choose to view as more suspicious. And then I would have ended up with a long record going into that last arrest, which that alone would have qualified me for a harsher sentence. So what was it like going to prison? My first night in prison, for all the upstate New York counties, they would take the women to the closest prison and you would do one night there and then they would take you to the max and that's where you would get, you know, booked in and classified and they determine where you're going to go long term. But that first night, they just put all the new intakes, which was, I don't know, maybe five or ten of us in a dorm that almost looked like a, a Harvard dorm where you've got like a, a hallway with like rooms <laughs> off of it with like bunk beds in them with metal security grating on the windows and literally nothing inside of it. <laughs> like we didn't have a clock. We did have a deck of cards and there were a few books. Yeah. But really all we had to do that night was just sit there and talk. And I think we played cards until like late in the night and, you know, just talked about where we thought we'd end up and where what prison we wanted, we hoped we would end up in and, you know, what we'd heard and what we would expect. And it seemed pretty non-threatening. Yeah. You know, it was not like what you think of when you're for your first night in prison. But then in the morning when we were getting loaded onto the bus to go to the max, I overheard two of the guards talking about this woman who was in shoe in solitary. And she, I don't know what happened to provoke this, but she took a shit on a mess all tray and pushed it back out the, the slot at the guards. I don't know if she was having a mental health issue or just being spiteful or if they had done something to wrong her. But in any case, they responded by turning off the water to her cell. And I overheard the one guard wondering about like, well, what's she gonna drink? And the other one was like, oh, she can drink out of the toilet. If it's good enough for my dog, it's good enough for her. And that was just, uh, that was a moment for me, like overhearing that and just sort of realizing that, yeah, they can do that. There is no oversight here, effectively. When something happens in prison, any oversight that exists is going to be after the fact, after they've already done whatever they're going to do. Did you ever end up in solitary? Yeah, I was in a few times for very short periods of time, just a few days when I was in the county jail. And um, some of it was just routine, like the medical isolation in the beginning. And a few times I was sent to another jail because our jail was overcrowded. And uh, some of those times I was in solitary at the beginning. Some of the cells have bars and then you can still talk to other people. But the first time that I was in solitary in a cell with a door, you know, I I don't know, man. I, I think that 
in theory, a lot of people think solitary doesn't sound that bad. They think, oh, I like spending time alone. Uh, you know, it, it would just be some a break from everything. It'd be some peace and quiet. But a meditation retreat. Right. I walked in that cell and it was just like a maddening. The walls were like a maddening shade of neon white. You couldn't see the clock. There was a little slit for a window that was very high up and you weren't allowed to stand on your bunk to look out it because they would yell at you to get off the fucking bunk. And um, as soon as that door shut behind me, I just burst into tears. It was just so immediately apparent that this was absolutely overwhelming. It's almost like being a a brain in a vat, like that philosophy yeah. conundrum. It's like that because so much of how you define who you are as a person is about how you interact with other people. Like that is how you define self is in relation to others and to interacting with other people. The ability to interact with other people and the ability to have agency and make choices are two of the biggest things as to how we define ourselves. But in solitary, you have neither of those. Yeah. And it very quickly feels like you are just a disembodied mind. And that is rough, right? I was trying to figure out how to kill myself reliably because I was worried if I, you know, tried and failed that I would just end up in a worse kind of solitary. You know, I, I was trying to figure out, like, could I stand on the sink and fall in the right way that I would crack my head? I mean, it, it got very dark very quickly. And I knew that that wasn't forever, but it was just like that was so bad, I didn't even care. I still have nightmares about it. Not as much as I used to, but I mean, it's been more than a decade. This is something I still have nightmares about. There was one woman that was like 300 pounds and she would always gladly hide some books for me because she could really hide a lot of books. And I would just stick them in my, <laughs> I'd be just sticking books in my jumpsuit. And like, there's clearly like sharp angles coming out of my jumpsuit and they're, <laughs> they're not asking any questions about that. Hi, CityCast listeners. Today is part two of my interview with my friend Carrie Blakinger, the most ferocious prisons reporter in Texas and the author of the new Corrections in Ink. It's the story of her extraordinary life. In part two, we cover the second half of Carrie's story, starting around 2011 when she was 26 and in various New York prisons. She talks about how she found her voice at the Houston Chronicle and why it is that she chooses to stay here in Texas. How did prison affect your sense of self in other ways? You're, how, what did you think of yourself while you were in prison? Did you define yourself in terms of the other prisoners? Did you see yourself as having no agency? What did you think your future might be? Huh. I am, I don't, I'm not sure what I thought my future would be. Certainly didn't think it would be this. But, um, uh -huh. <laughs> I, you just sit and think about it. You're I think, there. I think that when you're in prison, you're so singularly focused on getting out on waiting for time to pass that like, that is sort of your only goal for, for time to pass. Cause that's the only thing that matters at the end of the day in prison. Like whatever else you've done is just an add on. So I remember meeting you when we both worked at the Houston Chronicle and the first time that I realized how deeply being in prison had affected you was when we were talking about the stuff you own. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah. So, so one of the things in jail and in prison is that everything you own can be a liability. It is something that can, a guard can confiscate. It is something that they can often find something, you know, wrong about something to punish you for. They can find something in your letters. They can find that you have too many stamps or too many sweatshirts. Um, there's so many things that can result in punishment. And even those that, that don't, they can just be confiscated. So it seems like everything feels like a liability. Um, and this isn't like an abstract thing. This is like after months of having anything you value just repeatedly taken or destroyed, you start to be cautious about having belongings. So you actively don't want things, things that you could keep you get rid of. Right. I, th- I mean, that's how I handled it. Um, there's a pretty limited amount of stuff that you're even allowed to own. So it's not like anyone has a ton of stuff in prison. Um, right. But for me, I tried to always keep it as to as little stuff as I could, except for books. That was the thing. I, that was the one thing I hoarded. <laughs> um, in the county jail, we were only allowed to have 10 books per person. So every morning when they did cell inspection, like I would have to go give other people some books to hold on to. I'd like stuff some extra books into my <laughs> jumpsuit. And I, I'd like be, cause they'd make us come out of the cells and you would sit down at the tables while they searched your cell. And sometimes they just looked in and sometimes they just tore it apart and you never knew which. So I would, you know, put some books in other people's cells. But then when I got to prison, the property yeah. limits were bigger and you could have like 25 books, I think. Um, yeah. You know, but otherwise I, I tried to keep it light and I still, um, I still own very little stuff. I, it just, it's still. I mean, and when you say very little, do you. Everything I own can fit in my car. Yeah. And that was not how I lived before prison. Right. I mean, I remember hearing about yeah. when you had an apartment. Right now, you don't even have an apartment. <laughs> but when you did, you had basically a mattress on the floor, one plate and one fork. <laughs> I mean, I did own some books. But yes, in, term, books, in, term, yeah. in terms of kitchen okay. utensils, you're right. I had right. like a plate, a fork, and a coffee cup. Yeah. But I think that gets at like sort of the ways that this is still with you. So yeah. let's talk. When you got out of prison, you didn't think, oh, I'm going to go be a journalist, right? You kind of got accidentally hired into journalism, but it caught fire. Why, why was that? What was it? I mean, initially I got into not criminal justice reporting. It was just um, general assignment reporting. Yeah. And you were like out running whatever random crime had happened, whatever shooting well, but before that, when I what I started on was covering mm-hmm. small towns, covering, you know, town board meetings where they're arguing about, you know, the price of the next salt barn or, you know, backyard chicken ordinances, um, yeah. you know, really very small town shit in towns with like, you know, three, four five thousand people. But from the start, I mean, I like that because it felt like it was something I was doing of value after so many years of not doing anything of value. But when I, you know, when I got to the Chronicle, I I also, I mean, there I fell into the criminal justice stuff kind of accidentally. And, you know, um, I think this part is not really in the book, but um, I think one of the things that had a big influence on me deciding to write the book or sort of thinking through things that became, you know, major scenes in the book was was writing gray matters for you. Um, I started writing 
essays. But, but even then writing, I didn't, I was initially resistant to the idea of writing essays about my time in prison. It just seemed, um, I don't know, like, I don't know. It just seemed like trite or cheesy. Like, of course that like the girl who did time is going to be writing about all the felon shit. And the first one I did was about holidays in prison and what is the best holiday in prison. And I wrote about how the Super Bowl was something that we looked forward to so much, not because we gave a shit about the Super Bowl, but because in jail, they would order the cell block pizza for the Super Bowl. So we treated it like it was a big ass holiday. But I wrote that and I went through what some of the other holidays are like in prison. And the response I got was like, I thought this was just a sort of, I don't know, throwaway useless essay that people were going to be like, okay, neat, whatever. Um, But the response I got from people that had never thought about these aspects of incarceration before and thought that this gave a voice to experiences they were not familiar with and, you know, showed another side of what you see on TV. Yeah. But there was a way that you approached journalism that was different than most human beings. You wanted to be doing it constantly. You were writing on weekends. You were staying late whenever you could. I felt bad about getting you to work on weekends until I realized, I think you said to me once, oh, I'd rather do this than heroin. I need things to do on the weekend. It was like you were using journalism instead of drugs. Totally, yes. I mean, I've, I've always been an obsessive person, you know, and, and growing up, I mean, it was figure skating, which was an all-consuming sport. And then when my skating fell apart, you know, I, I dove into heroin with the same ferocity. And you, you weren't a half-assed addict. You went all the way. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then, you know, since then, I've, I've been so lucky to find a career that I am passionate about and can throw myself into and is not just fulfilling for me, but actually benefits people. Yeah. Is there a particular reason that you've chosen to stay in Texas? You could cover corrections anywhere in the country at this point. Yeah, but shit is real broken here. Totally. This is this is why when I moved to Texas and I started covering criminal justice here, I realized how great of a place it was to be doing that. Because first of all, there are not as many reporters here that are covering this. If you're in New York, people are tripping all over each other to cover Rikers Island. But that is not the case in Texas. There's a handful of people that even cover these issues. And in most cases, it's just part of a larger beat. So, you know, like Lauren McGaughy and Jolie at the Tribune, like, you know, they both have a lot of other things to cover. But the other thing is, it is a a vast prison system. There's around 100 prisons. You know, there's around 120,000 people locked up in Texas. Like, there's a, a lot of problems that I uncovered in the years I was reporting on it. And there's still... Um, tons of problems I uncover now. And I mean, obviously now I'm at the Marshall Project, so I'm covering much more than Texas. But I think for a prison system its size, there should be so many more people covering Texas prisons. Like there's more people covering the federal prisons, which are only slightly bigger. There's more people covering New York prisons, which are much smaller. Um, But Texas prisons still don't get the amount of coverage that I think they, uh, they deserve. Hi. How are you treated when you go to report at a prison? What is it like? Um, you know, it's interesting. I um 
everybody knows now that you are a felon, that you have served time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's always the case, the prisons I show up at. But um, yeah. I think that since I'm most of where I'm visiting is Texas prisons. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of the staff know my name as the person that writes bad things about their prisons. Um, but they're, they've always been great to me. I think that some of the, you know, one of the surprising things is that a lot of the staff don't like to see this shit going on either because it also affects them. When people are starting fires, it makes their life worse. If the food they're serving is terrible, it means that people are going to, there's going to be more unrest and people are going to complain more. You know, if there's no air conditioning, that's a difficult work environment, you know? So I, I think that a lot of the staff have, have, you know, not treated me as the enemy because I think they appreciate that I'm covering issues that, you know, make their lives worse too. Um, I suspect the administration does not typically feel the same way, but I don't um, <laughs> run into them on most prison right. visits. How do the prisoners respond to you? Um, the, <laughs> you know, one of my, one of my favorite ways that I've seen jail mail addressed is when I was at the Chronicle, sometimes I would get mail that was addressed to the reporter who used to be in prison. <laughs> or, or somebody I think did one that was like the reporter who did time. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I mean, people knew who that was. It ended up on my desk. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I think that also sort of reflects, I mean, I think that also says something there. Um, because they they recognize that experience and they a- appreciate that that means I'm coming at it from, you know, from a different place than a lot of people that walk into that prison to interview them come at it from. Yeah. Do you feel like you're at the right place in your life that in some ways everything has led you to cover prisons, especially in Texas? <laughs> um all that figure skating you did. It was leading straight to Texas prisons, right? <laughs> I have never <laughs> thought about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't think of a lot about like, am I at the right place in my life or like, because um, right. I feel like that's Good. also sort of the flip side of thinking about like, are there things you regret, you know? Right. And um, I don't know. I don't really let myself go down that path because like, Sure. Are there things that, are there other roads that, you know, it could have taken? Are there things I could have done differently? Like, sure. Are there things that I feel remorse about that I feel bad about how they happened? Of course. But, you know, I, I try not to, I think if I let myself go down the path of the sort of what ifs and, you know, what could have been like, that would just be a sort of endless dark pit for me. That is the brain in a jar kind of thing where you're Thinking in circles. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I am very proud of you. I think you're doing great stuff. Thank you. (laughs) That was Carrie Blakinger. Her new book is Corrections in Ink. We'll have information in our show notes and also a link where you can buy a copy that will be sent to a prisoner. We will be back tomorrow. Talk with you then. feel like Carrie landing her double axle. Yeah. <laughs>